welcome to another edition of the Hermeneutics Podcast. I'm your host, Naam O'Brien, and this is the program dedicated to the art and science of biblical interpretation. On today's program, we have uh, an honored guest for me, uh, a man who probably needs no introduction, Dr. James White. He is the director of Alpha and Omega Ministries, professor of Greek systematic theology and other subjects, the author of more than 20 books, 24, I think the website said, including some of my favorites, The King James Only Controversy and The Potter's Freedom. Uh, just Dr. White, you would, um, just to cut my introduction, my wife used to read your book on The Potter's Freedom at Pensacola Christian College in a wrapper because she was afraid of getting kicked out of college. Um, but he's also the pastor and elder of Apologia Church in Arizona. And so, Dr. White, I'd like to welcome you on today's show. Thank you for coming on. It's great to be with you. Uh, great to be sort of sort of back in in Norway. Sort of. Um, I did go running there. I really uh, that was a that was a cool run. It was um, it was it was fun. It was a very different, very very different type of context to be in. But uh, uh, who knows if I'll ever have a chance to be in such places again? But <laughs> At least well, we have this for now until the uh, oligarchs figure out how to get rid of us here, too. So we'll see. <laughs> and you are always welcome. Um, yeah, so today, the reason why we're having you on the podcast is to discuss hermeneutics, obviously, the subject of the podcast. But particularly, I reached out to you in reference to the video that came out by Ted Alexander. And um, I don't really want to talk about the video because I, I felt that you treated that pretty pretty completely in one of your latest dividing lines. Um, yes. But in the video, he actually says, make some claims uh, about your methods of hermeneutics. He says that you have a quote, double hermeneutic, that you are an allegoricalist, uh, that you hate, this is kind of more to the translation issue, but you hate formal equivalents and that you only want to get people out of the KJV into the NIV because you're a lover of dynamic uh, equivalents. So what I thought, since instead of going into his video completely, I thought it'd be interesting because you and I come from the same background, albeit separated from a few years, um, of the IFB background. And you are, like my pastor back in Michigan, now a Reformed Baptist, uh, who is and it's just interesting to see how that progression was made, uh, specifically in regards to how you interpreted scripture. And so really, let's just start with uh, your IFB background, a little bit about what you grew up in and how was the hermeneutical approach to the Bible back then? Well, let's let's dismiss part of the uh, Alexander stuff. Uh, I, <laughs> I have for a very long time, well, for quite a time, I was uh, a critical consultant on the New American Standard Bible. I use, I like personally, I like the 1977 uh, NASB. Of course, it's much better when it was bound by Jeffrey Rice and and has all the neat cool stuff because then it's really even proves that you know cool people and things like that. But um, uh, so I am more of a formal, formal equivalency guy. I've always taught that I think that the primary locus of interpretation should be in the church and especially in the pulpit, in the, in the preaching the word. And so um, uh, personally, if I'm if I'm really prepared for a sermon, if I've had time, and it's a sermon that is exegetical in nature rather than topical, like this Sunday I'm preaching and uh, I'm going to do a Reformation theme, 
uh, type thing. So I'm going to be bouncing around. It's sort of a little bit difficult to do that um, from the original languages. But I try, if it's an exegetical sermon, to use the original languages. And hence, my live translation, so I won't use an English text, my live translation will be pretty formal. Um, it, it's not going to be super dy dynamic or anything like that. Uh, I don't use the NIV um, or TNIV or whatever they're on these days. I have no, no idea where they are. Um, and so we can just dismiss all that stuff. And as to the allegorical stuff, I guess we can get into that when we talk a little bit about, about eschatology. Um, I was raised as a uh, dispensational, premillennial, pre-trib rapture person. I, I think as most people in that realm, uh, you don't know there's anything else. You're just, you're not, you're not even encouraged to have friendships with people that look differently than you uh, so much so that they'd have a different eschatology. And so it was just sort of naturally taken up in your thinking that those are salvation issues. And if you're really saved, you'll understand this anyways. Um, then when I started getting into apologetics, thanks to running into some Mormon missionaries, um, I was uh, really started getting into that second year in Bible college. Well, it wasn't really Bible college. It was, it was a Southern Baptist college. And I was majoring in Bible, but I was also majoring in biology. I was thinking about pre-med, maybe medical missions or something like that. Um, and so uh, I ended up double majoring biology and minor in Greek is what I ended up doing in Canyon. It didn't take me long uh, to realize that the hermeneutics that I was using in defending the faith and presenting the faith to Mormons was quite different than the hermeneutics that lay behind my eschatology. And that made me uncomfortable. At the same time, I don't remember all the details, but I, I just came to the conclusion that eschatology seemed to be like the battery acid of theological topics. Um, people would divide over it and there would just there just wasn't any grace. There, there was just uh, everybody would just attack everybody else. And I think I was so focused upon the central issues with Mormonism. And then Jehovah's Witnesses came shortly after that. Then Roman Catholicism came shortly after that, that I just sort of came to the errant conclusion. I would say it's errant now, but I came to the conclusion that I just want to leave that eschatology stuff as far out of here as possible. And so I left believing in a pre-millennial scheme, but I didn't really land anyplace else for a long time. And in fact, if you, if you ever want to get a super dirty look from John MacArthur, uh, make the mistake I made. Uh, at the Christian Booksellers Association in 1995, um, we had both contributed to uh, this book, uh, Solo Scriptura. I had written a really in-depth, I was already teaching church history and stuff, and uh, I had wrote a really in-depth chapter. still really find this chapter to be helpful. Um, and so we were doing a book signing, and... Well, MacArthur was doing the book signing. I was helping MacArthur with the book signing. And somewhere in between all of that, he looks at me and says, so, what, so what's your eschatology? And I just jokingly said, ah, pan-millennial, so I'll pan out in the end. If you want, if you want to get a really dirty look uh, from John MacArthur, that's, that's how you get it, because uh, I got it. And uh, so I, I don't remember what year it was. Um, 
I think it was after 2006, maybe. I listened to a, a cassette tape series. Yes, cassette tape series. That was a big thing when I was younger. Um, from Dr. Nichols at Trinity Academy, where he presented the amillennial argument of this age and the age to come. And I said, hey, that sounds good. That, that makes sense. And so I adopted amillennialism, though I'm not going to be a guy who sits here and says, oh, I, I know all about it because I was that for a long time. No, I, I, I always knew that you needed to have your eschatology consistent with the rest of your theology. But I just, I just could not work up the, the passion to, to read through the books. And to, I don't know why, I just couldn't. And uh, so I was an amillennialist of convenience in reform circles. That's sort of a neutral position. It's sort of like, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. A lot of people, yeah, you know, you don't have to really defend anything and you just sort of do your thing. Um, and so that's where I was for quite a while until probably 2018. Well, somewhere in the mid 20 teens, I uh, preached an entire series on, we started with the holiness code, but basically I sought to tackle every wildly difficult text from the law including if two men are fighting and a woman reaches out and grabs something, you know, the whole, that, that one too. Um, I, I, I tried to really tackle in light of, I don't know if you ever saw it, but there was a, the West Wing episode where the president goes after the lady who was representing the Jewish, uh, what was it, Dr. Laura, uh, and mocked the idea that we could look at Leviticus, and that that had any relevance today to the subject of homosexuality. And so um, I spent a lot, I think there were 35 sermons grand total in that. And uh, that forced me to really start thinking through some issues relating to God's law and the moral content of the law, issues like New Covenant theology and stuff like that. And at the same time, the social justice movement started to explode all over the place. 2018, the MLK 50 stuff, all that. And so I think it was 20, late in 2018, I went to Apologia. Um, and all the other elders at Apologia are post-millennialists. And uh, my dear brother, Jeff Durbin, was preaching through Matthew 24, which he has been, which he did for a very, very long time. <laughs> and, uh, and that was great. I was learning a lot. I uh, this was stuff that I always known was out there, but didn't really have time to get into. Didn't really have the interest of getting into. And what really happened, uh, eventually leading uh, at the beginning of this year to my uh, adopting the postmillennial perspective, was I was forced to think hermeneutically. First of all, to recognize, look, you just can't leave your eschatology sitting out here. It it it, it needs to be a part of everything else. And it has a huge impact on how you view the church and what the church is going to be doing. Um, and how the church can look at the future, especially. I think part of this also was um, once you become a grandfather, you start thinking about the future more seriously than any other time in your life. Uh, having kids, that's one thing. But 
when your kids have kids, all of a sudden you start seeing yourself in a much longer view and you start thinking about the future. And as Doug Wilson said in a film that I found very helpful uh, on earth as it is in heaven, uh, he said, Christians, American Christians almost never, ever, ever think about their great grandchildren and what kind of world they're going to live in and what they can do to sow the seed of truth into them because most of them don't think that they're going to have great grandchildren. And that's, and I knew as a church history professor, I knew that every generation had lived with that idea that, you know, it couldn't get any worse than this. Um, and they had all been wrong for 2000 years. Um, and so I adopted a hermeneutic that basically said, if we're going to deal, deal with eschatology, we need to start, we need to do it top, top to top to bottom, not bottom to top. Cause I remember, uh, as a premillennialist that I would, uh, talk to my fellow teenagers. Cause I was high school at the time about the fig tree and the fig tree coming into bloom and well that's israel and so israel became a nation in 1948 and a generation's 40 years that's 1988 and ed ed wisnot ed wisnot whatever his name was uh his little booklet was on uh, on all of our uh cars we came out from church one night uh, uh, 88 reasons why Christ returned in 1988. I think they became 89 reasons for 89 or something like that. Something like. But uh, all that stuff. And it was all based on starting down here in current events or uh, how many nations were in the European Union. And that's you know, 10 nations. It's a 10 headed beast. And you're trying to you're trying to take all this stuff down here and build something up. And I, I came to the realization that in all the rest of my theology, you start with first principles. You start with, in soteriology, you start with who God is, because he's the one who makes man. If you start with man, you're going to end up with a view of God that's going to be strangely human, uh, rather than starting where you need to start, first principles. And so when I did that, when I, when I realized that, then uh, I went to those key uh, texts from the Tanakh, uh, from the Old Testament, that clearly are brought through into the New Testament in fulfillment, and that clearly uh, define how the apostles understood the very mission of Christ. And so Psalm 2, Psalm 110, Isaiah 42, those are the key ones, because those are the ones cited over and over and over again by the apostles. And, and so it's sort of like, okay, Jesus met with the apostles after his resurrection. He taught them from Moses onward that these things were about me. So what did they, how do I know what Jesus said? Well, you you look at the preaching of the early church. You look at the epistles. Here are the topics. Here are the passages that they cite over and over and over again. And this is how they tie it all together. And when you, when you see it all come together in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he he must reign until all enemies are put under his feet. And I really just had to come to the conclusion that, that by the way, when I was a premillennialist, I didn't read any amillennial or postmillennial works. When I adopted amillennialism, I still, postmillennialism, that's nuts. I mean, everybody, everybody knows 
things aren't getting better every day, which of course is not what it says, but I didn't read uh, any of those. I, I took, by the way, that's the same route that uh, R.C. Sproul took. Uh, Sproul, Sproul took, at one point in his life, held all the different perspectives. Probably not ever dispensationalism, but at least premillennialism. I was going to so ask least you to like him. What's that? So I was going to ask you to clarify that a little bit, because you had mentioned when you were um, out evangelizing with the, um, the the Mormon people that you realized that the hermeneutic that you were using to evangelize them was different than the one you held in your eschatology at the time. Right. Could you could you elaborate on that a little bit? Well, the Mormons have a number of tremendously bad interpretations of biblical texts forced upon them by the prophethood of Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith had no hermeneutical methodology, okay? He wasn't trained in anything. Um, and so once he adopted this idea that he was a prophet, then the stuff he comes up with, I mean, honestly, absolutely honestly, he actually, uh, for example, uh, Mormons believe that in the resurrected state, we have bodies of flesh and bone, but no blood. Because Paul said flesh and blood will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. So you must not have blood. So flesh and bone will. I mean, um, the, the three levels of heaven he got out of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, because it talks about uh, different levels of glory. And, there, and there's, he didn't understand what celestial and terrestrial meant, which is heavenly and earthly. The King James just didn't. The King James was inconsistent in its translation of the original Greek terms there in the Gospels. It's just heavenly, earthly. Um, and so so he didn't have a hermeneutic methodology. And so I was already having to explain to Mormons why uh, uh, the two sticks in Ezekiel are not the Book of Mormon and the Bible. And to try to say... You, you know, you have to allow these texts to speak for themselves. You can't be enforcing this stuff upon them. And once you start doing that, then you start looking at how um, how Lindsay, because uh, I remember senior, junior, or senior year in high school, probably senior year, uh, taking one of the California achievement tests things, and uh, I was class valedictorian, so I got done first, and I was just sitting there filling filling my thumbs. And what book was I reading? Late Great Planet Earth. And you start looking at the connections that they're making to the European Union and Gog and Magog is Russia and a 200 million man army must be China. And it's just all this. Um, it's the same thing that Joseph Smith was doing in his day, making connections to stuff that would have had no I mean, the original audience would have been going, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? Uh, and so that's where, that, that's what I'm referring to is I was starting to understand the, the, the basics of doing hermeneutics and realized, man, I, I've never even been challenged to think in a hermeneutically consistent way about eschatology. And in fact, my experience pretty much growing up was not to be challenged to have a consistent, either consistent worldview or a consistent theological system at all. And once you get into apologetics, you realize that 
you can't be telling somebody else you're being inconsistent when you don't even give it a second thought yourself. And so that was really where that took place at, at that point. And so um, to finish up my, my, my point, I, as I see it now, when you look at these overarching purposes of the Father, Son, and Spirit in redemption, and then Jesus, all authority is given me in heaven and earth. Uh, in, the, in the prophecies, he's, it's, it said, ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. And I think part of the problem really honestly has been, uh, I think a lot of people have an eschatology that's based on what they see going on in the world right now. And I've always known, I've known, I've known for years, you can't do that. As a church history professor, I've known for years that leads you astray. But there was a part of me, even as a Reformed theologian, that goes, can God really do this? Could God really subdue the nations? Could God really change that many hearts? And I'm sort of like, well, if you're, if, if you're going to believe that, if, you, if you're sitting here and you're looking at prophetic material from Isaiah, Isaiah 42, I look at Isaiah 7.14, I look at Isaiah 9. I look at all these fulfilled prophecies in Jesus and I go, yeah, fulfilled prophecy. God can do anything. But if it's still to be fulfilled, then it's sort of like, well, you know, we don't want to be crazy now. <laughs> and yet the stuff that he fulfilled in the past was, you know, like resurrection and stuff like that. So who's being inconsistent here? And so if the promises are there, then um, I think I think you believe the promises. So. All of that to say that hermeneutically, in regards to where your where your podcast is coming from, obviously I've had to in dealing with so many different groups. Um, and obviously I deal primarily, I mean, I do, I do deal with Islam. And there are some times when dealing with Islam, you have to um, engage in hermeneutic discussions because they they will attempt to utilize the Christian scriptures in some way, shape, or form. But most of the groups I deal with, Roman Catholicism, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, the various Unitarian groups, I'm always having to call people on the wild hermeneutical leaps that they make to try to come up with the stuff they're going to say. And so consistency in that area, not really an option uh, for me. And it really it ends up being a topic that you have to be able to give instruction on, on the sidewalk, outside the Mormon temple, outside the district convention of Jehovah's Witnesses, um, uh, in the middle of the debate, when, when someone is making an argument, he's like, that, that, that doesn't follow because you're, you're misusing the text here, and here's why. And um, so that's just been a part of what I do regularly for decades now. In fact, we just celebrated uh, last year 30, yeah, 30 years of debates starting in 1990. So there you go. Mm. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're a Roman Catholic yourself, uh, according to... <laughs> <laughs> I was uh, on Twitter, I was saying that you're possibly the worst Catholic I've ever seen. Well, uh, I do wear crosses all the time, so that, <laughs> that might might mean something. And But yes, um, According to certain um, certain King James onlyists, uh, who obviously have really wild definitions of what it means to be a Roman Catholic, that 
I've never met a Roman Catholic who shared those definitions, but there you go. Um, but yeah, no, I, my, my Roman Catholic opponents uh, are, are well aware of the fact that um, I'm on a very, very different page than they are. <laughs> so going back to the consistency uh, aspect of hermeneutics, which led you ultimately to the post-millennial position, um, what are then the the principles of hermeneutics that you would recommend? What what what's the consistent use? Well, there's just wow, there's so much there. Um, there's a lot of first principle issues. I I think one of the uh, one of the key things today that distinguishes exegetes and and a lot of the liberal theology or leftist theology we see. Uh, being promoted out there, I see a huge difference between approaching Scripture as the apostles did and approaching Scripture as most modern evangelicals do. What I mean by that is it's it's painfully obvious, given how they use Scripture and how they preached from the Scriptures and how they wrote Scripture, that they believed in a pan-canonical consistency that is not a simplistic surface level, you know, like one of the IFB hermeneutical principles that is just completely bogus is the law of first mention. Uh, were, were you, you're, you're laughing. You, you were taught that as well? Yes. Yes. Not, you know, not, law, not by name. We never got that deep into theology, but, uh, but by example, yes. Yes, yeah, yeah. So, and, and it's, it goes right along with what we would call a Strong's Exhaustive Concordance knowledge of the original languages. <laughs> um, so you, you, you look up the word, and the way it's used the first time is what it means throughout Scripture. And it, I had, I was blessed to not only have some really good professors in Bible college, one of them, Dr. D.C. Martin, who just loved to challenge all of us to, to go deeper and to think, to think and things like that. But I started Greek fairly early on, and I minored in it. And I'm sorry, once you, once you start seriously translating the text, you know, to the point where you can read from, when you can preach from the text, read from the text, you just can't, you can't, you can't do things like that. You, you learn that the same writer will use the same word in two different paragraphs in very, very different ways. You will, you understand what's called semantic domain and you study language and you, you learn how vocabulary works and, and you see how it works even in the English language. So you have to abandon stuff like that. And so there's that kind of stuff you, you push aside. And of course, what happens with a lot, with a lot of IFB guys is they just throw everything up. That's that's where the emergent church came from. That's where so many of today's heretics came from, is they started there, found out that that didn't work, and instead of valuing the truths and then separating out the traditions, they just decided it was all tradition, threw it all on the table and said, let's, let's come up with something new. Uh, thankfully, I didn't do that. The Lord kept me from doing that. Um, and uh, like I said, very, very thankful for that. So this pan-canonical consistency is not a simplistic thing. I have often used the analogy of a, a woven 
tapestry where you have, you know, a, a, when, you, when you watch the process of how high-end tapestries are made, it's fascinating because the person doing it has to have a, a big picture from the start. You have to know where you're going to create those beautiful designs. And, and while it's being made, it looks like an absolute mess. But when it's done, you find these, these threads that are woven through from beginning to end. And, and as they go into different contexts, they take on different hues of colors. It's just beautiful. And when you look at scripture, that's what you see. Uh, when, you, when you read Revelation, for what it was, a, a historical document that had a meaning to the people to whom it was written. That was that was what I missed when I was a young person, was I, and, and I think it may have been one of the first thing, the first cracks in my pre-millennial understanding is that someone finally said, well, isn't it weird that, that John would write a book that no one would have any clue what it was about until our day? And I'm sort of like, yeah, um, hmm, that is weird. I mean, they're under persecution and they get this book and they wouldn't have a clue what in the world it was talking about. Uh, when you read it for what it's actually talking about, you also discover it's just soaked, just as Hebrews is, soaked in the threads of the Old Covenant scriptures and fulfillment themes and uh, just, just so much of, of this this stuff, which since I was reading a New American Standard, I should have seen because the NASB puts all that stuff in block quotes. Um, and it should have been, wow, there's a lot of Old Testament in here, but it just sort of went in one ear out the other. I didn't just didn't see it. That's just when you see those themes woven together, that unity of Scripture is the only reason, for example, to be a Trinitarian. If you don't believe that, if, if you don't believe that what is found in Genesis can and should be seen as being intimately connected to what's found in Revelation or what's found in Romans or what's found in Isaiah, there's no reason to be a Trinitarian. The, the doctrine of the Trinity is based upon the, the pulling together of a holistic testimony of Scripture in regards to the nature of God. If, if the nature of scripture is not such that you believe that's possible, there's just a lot of stuff that you shouldn't believe any longer as a Christian, or you're really not sure you should be a Christian, to be perfectly honest with you. So the issue of your fundamental view of scripture and having a high view of scripture and hence being able to do a hermeneutic that, that allows for consistency is one of the biggest dividing lines that I see. You know, I, I fully understand the biblical theology movement, and I fully understand that you need to know what the argument of Galatians is as the argument that Paul presents in that one letter. But what happens is if you then open up the possibility that, and by the way, Paul was just really ticked off that day. And so Galatians is not necessarily going to fit with Romans. Okay, now you've got a grab bag. You've got, when I was a kid, we had Tinker Toys. I guess Legos is the big thing today. But you, you just pour the thing out on the ground and you just, I'd make stuff. I'll take this and this and stick these together and just make whatever I make. 
that's what you end up with in much of modern theology. Once you break the unity of the source of theology, and that is the consistency of scripture. So that's really, I think, the answer to why there's so much divergence. You know, I have a lot of people who go out and they'll buy a, they'll buy a commentary. They think they're, I'm going to get deep into, the pastor preached a sermon from Romans, and so I'm going to get deep into Romans. Well, my goodness, there are some truly tremendous commentaries on Romans, but oh my, are there so many that will just leave you going completely lost uh, because they, they're not going to make any effort to uh, connect holistically the message of Romans to anything else in scripture. And they're going to you know, just throw all sorts of things at a poor young believer that had no idea uh, that there was that kind of stuff out there. Uh, that seems to be the, one of the major dividing lines before and, and I don't know that a lot of evangel a lot of evangelicals will talk. You know, we'll go get our manuals on hermeneutics, and we'll talk about context, and we'll talk about the original languages, and we'll talk about authorial intent. We'll talk about the audience, and we'll talk about the context, and 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 hopefully we'll do some semantic domain studies as far as vocabulary and things like that. Go. That's all wonderful. That's all good. That's all necessary. Um, but there tends to be less emphasis placed upon the first principles of what is it that we're seeking to interpret mm. and why should we, and, and can we even have this emphasis that we are we're talking about on the unity? And that, that takes you back to what you think scripture is. And, you know, my webcast is called the dividing line. That wasn't a promotion, by the way. Uh, it's called the dividing line because all the way back when I was a teenager, almost, uh, we pro I probably named it when I was in my early 20s, so I guess I wasn't a teenager. But Whether you believe God has spoken and spoken with clarity and consistency was the dividing line. Uh, and so how you responded to the cults, how, in other words, whether you should or shouldn't respond to them, what the nature of your response could be, it all went back to whether you believe the scripture was sufficient in and of itself. So sola scriptura, tota scriptura, key issues that are first principles, I think, in in doing hermeneutics um, from a Christian perspective. And if, you know, there, there are a lot of Christians that don't believe that you do hermeneutics from a Christian perspective, but Jesus did. <laughs> so I, I don't know how else to approach it. Mm. So going back to the, the latest thing that has developed, which I find it encouraging that your theology in a sense, you're still you're still brushing up your theology, even even today. What thirty some years after uh, in ministry, um, but what what was the first thing to go? Like obviously, when you growing up in the IFB, I'm guessing you weren't reformed. I'm guessing you weren't uh, Calvinistic. Um, now that's interesting because that's a that's a funny story. Um, here, let me let me grab this down here real quick. Ah. I'm glad I have it in here. Christian Theology by P.B. Fitzwater. Now, I had, um, there was a guy, I don't remember who I sent this to, to have, oh, yes, I do, have it rebound because the, it was coming apart. But this is an old, old uh, edition uh, of this book, and I don't think there's even any marks in it. What's, 1948. This was, this was printed in 1948. And, there are a few underlines in here. This was my dad's 
theology text at Moody Bible Institute. Mm. Now, what's interesting, P.B. Fitzwater was a Presbyterian. So there was a, there wasn't so much the terminology and language, but there was a foundation in my dad's theology from Moody that had a strong reform bent to it. Mm-hmm. And so I remember, again, those key years in high school, just had my 40th uh, high school reunion uh, last Friday. Walking down memory lane, let me tell you something. And I I am really convinced that the the human brain experiences a tremendous amount of growth and solidification in its perspectives during that time period. It's an important period. And uh, so uh, I remember struggling with issues like election and perseverance and quote unquote eternal security without having a lot of the terminology that I would now use today. And we were in a, at that point, we're in a mega church, a a massive Southern Baptist church, 20,000 members. You can never find more than 7,000 at any one time, but there were 20,000 names on the list. And I appreciate my time there. And the pastor of the church was an incredible preacher, but he was not a consistent preacher. And so I remember one of the things that really started troubling me was he preached a sermon on Isaiah 6 and the holiness of God that was Jonathan Edwards level. It was fantastic. And two weeks later, preached out of Mark and basically contradicted everything he said out of Isaiah. Hmm. And I was now again, had gotten into doing apologetics less than, it was right at, it's about two months after I got married. I got married at 19. My wife was 18, I was 19. And uh, I think that was awesome because now we get to play with our grandkids and we're still young enough to do it. It's uh, this waiting until you're 47 years old to get married thing is just dumb. Um, Anyway, uh, so that, period of time i was starting to come to understand you need to have consistency and there was a a volunteer my wife worked in the tape ministry at the church tape yes i have to explain to people but why were you taping things uh cassette tape yes it's a wonderful thing and um i can still i I can still you're not did you have cassette tapes? Oh yeah, that I had they were popular for maybe 2 or 3 years before CDs came out. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. And so that horrible feeling when you didn't clean your your cassette player uh, or your Walkman messed up and it eats your tape and and you're just sitting there with it you're trying to get everything put back in. Oh, it's yeah, that was that was that was so they they worked in the tape ministry and he gave uh, my wife Edwin Palmer's Five Points of Calvinism. And I had only had a negative experience with the term Calvinism. I There was a guy at Grand Canyon College. I got to chapel real early. He was sort of a weird dude. So the first Calvinist I knew was a weird dude. Okay, And 
I, I was all excited because we had just been out at the Mormon temple and we had been wit witnessing the people. It was so exciting. And he just started listening to me and he's just like, yeah, well, if they're of the elect, they're going to get saved one way or the other. And I'm like, what? <laughs> what, what are you talking about? So he was sort of a hyper Calvinist. Uh, he wasn't into evangelism and stuff like that. And <clears throat> so I'm at first I'm like, eh. And then the next experience I had was with Jehovah's Witnesses. There was an article in the Watchtower about Calvin. And you can imagine how, how balanced and fair that one was. Um, so I'm sort of like, eh, yeah, dear, well, be careful. I've heard some weird stuff. And, and she reads the book. It's not a long book. And she's like, this makes perfect sense to me. What do you think about it? And so I had to read it. And I'm like, I've never even thought about some of these things before. And it was really when, when I think it was Palmer who, who said, so the atonement, is it really an atonement or not? Does it just make things possible or is it an actual atonement? And I, I remember sitting back going, I've never even thought of this, but man, I've, oh no. And then I read, Chosen by God, Pharisee Scroll. And that was it. Uh, everything, the lights started going on. In God's providence, at the exact same time, uh, I was taking a apologetics class in seminary. And I didn't know it, had no way of knowing it. But my professor was a presuppositionalist. He didn't use that terminology, but he was, he had us reading. Blaise Pascal, Francis Schaeffer, all this stuff. Now it's obvious in hindsight, but at the time, everybody in the class is going, what is this guy talking about? I mean, I remember uh, in class one day, he, he, he said, and boy, this is really controversial today, sadly. Uh, he said, Thomas Aquinas proved the wrong God. And I'm like, what? All I had ever read was Norman Geisler. So, you know, so in all came flying together at the same time and both apologetically and theologically all at the same time. It's like, Oh, Oh, okay. And then I, then I go back to stuff like this and yeah, that's what he was saying. He just didn't necessarily you know, use all the, all the terminology. And once you get the terminology, it's like, Oh, okay. All right. So, so that's really, that's where, where it all happened fairly, fairly quickly. But we had already gone to a Southern Baptist church, so a lot of the external uh, stuff had sort of fallen away at that point. Uh, so we didn't have the, the kind of pressures that you you would have had if we had been in an IFB church at that at that point. You're at a Southern Baptist church; it's a mega church. That means there's a lot of different perspectives uh, running around the hallways, um, and so that probably helped too. What do you think? I'm an avid listener of the dividing line. So you, often you are talking about consistency uh, in exegesis, consistency in hermeneutics. Why do you think it's so hard to be consistent? Well, uh, because we have the temptation to bend God's word to our desires. We, we, come to the word and 
if we are looking for guidance, we our hearts may already be set on something. We may already want to do something. And so you start looking for text in us. Let me give <laughs> let me give you an illustration. Uh, I may have I've, I know I've told the story on the program before, so forgive me if it ends up being repetitious. But uh, I was a second. I think I had finished my second year. Maybe maybe I was into my third year of Greek. I, I forget exactly where it was, but I was a staff assistant at that church, and we had a youth minister who had come on board. You know how youth ministers are. Uh, they don't want to stay youth ministers for the rest of their lives. Um, and so they want to make a name for themselves. And this guy was a good preacher in the sense that he could be a very forceful preacher. And so he comes to me and he says, look, I know you're real good with Greek and stuff like that. He says, um, I was reading this commentary and it was, I forget who the, who the commentator was, but he was big name, big name. And he says, I'm, it was in Matthew, I think it was in the Beatitudes. And he said, I've never heard this interpretation before, but man, it preaches. But since I've never heard it, could you check it out? Let, let me know what you think. Now, that was a little weird, uh, to be honest with you, but okay, that, that's fine. You know, some people didn't really pay attention in Greek and seminary, whatever. I don't know. And so uh, I got the commentary and I dug into it. And you know, I translated the passages. I listened to what the guy's saying because I mean, he's a big scholar. I'm not no big scholar, but it was real obvious to me um, that this interpretation was way out in left field. I mean, it was barely connected to the text. The, the, the grammar didn't require it. The syntax didn't require it. The, the the lexicography of the terminology didn't require it. So here was here was a scholar. Make you know, I don't know what in his background or his history made him see or hear the things that he thought he was seeing or hearing, but it it just wasn't required by the text at all. And so I wrote up like a two-page, very narrow mar margin, not double space, single space. So there was a fair amount of text to it, a response to it that basically said, Yeah, no, that's <laughs> it. Doesn't really doesn't really fly. Well, here's the rest of the story. I worked in the TV, TV ministry, and I ran one of these big, large studio cameras out in the, amongst the people. There was these risers you'd stand up on, and it was a big place, 4,500 seats. And um, so I was on camera one. I remember which camera I was on. And so a Sunday, a couple weeks later, comes up, and his name was Rick. Rick was preaching. And uh, so... I hear him go to Matthew. I'm like, oh, okay, well, all right. And I hear him go to that text. Okay, all right. You know. And I'm somewhat distracted. I am, I've got headsets on. I'm supposed to be, like, I'd be the one to go out in the audience and shoot audience shots, which is really tough to do. Because you're, you're trying to find somebody that looks like they're, they're really, really interested, you know. And then this is, something like this would happen. You know, they, they, they start falling asleep right, right as your shot came. You know? So you're, you're really having to, I'm having to work, but I'm still listening. And you know what he did. I wouldn't be telling this story if you didn't know what he did. He 
he preached it. He preached the position that I had said doesn't have a foundation. And I'm like, well, I do remember him saying it really preaches well. Interesting thing was, it didn't really preach that well. <laughs> there really wasn't much of a response. So after the sermon, we, we wore these jackets. They wanted us all to look the same. We had to go back and hang them up. And I'm walking back behind. This place is a labyrinth. And I'm in a hallway where there's really no way out of it. And he's coming the other direction. And he sees me coming. And he, he just he sort of looks down. He sort of gets a big grin on his face. And, and we both stop in the hallway. And he goes, I know. I know. He says, but it just preaches so well. There you go. So, mm. so if you want it to say what you want it to say, you're gonna make it. You're gonna make it say it. That seems to be the major method of hermeneutic in my upbringing. Was it preaches well? Yeah. yeah. Um, I remember hearing probably the worst example of sermon I've ever heard was a guy. Um, he was in the talking about David and the five smooth stones, and he said that David's this passage has a sister verse something I've never heard of in my life, but a sister verse. And he goes to Jesus's uh, triumphal entry when he says, if I tell these people to stop praising me, the stones will cry out. And so because the stone can cry out in Jesus's day, the stones can cry out in David's day. And what do the stones tell us? They tell us that you should dress well, that you should pay the pastor well, that you should uh, support evangelism. Yeah. All these, all these different things. And I, so all this to say is in, in your expertise from years and years and years of teaching ministry and hermeneutics and, and so on and so forth. Have you ever heard of the sister verse? <laughs> well, well, I've not heard the sister verse concept uh, <laughs> before and nor have I ever heard the stones crying out connected with the stones uh, that David threw. I, I don't, I, I, maybe this, the five stones would cry out the five solas or the five <laughs> points of Calvinism. Hey, we'd go that direction if we wanted. <laughs> but if, if we're giving bad examples, here's something to avoid doing. If you, <laughs> if you want to keep your life somewhat happy uh, in the church, don't do what I did. Same church, the main pastor, the big guy, the big guy, the almost president of SBC at one point guy. Um, it's tithing commitment time. And this place has multi-million dollar budgets. So this is the 1980s, so it's big. When you have a 4,500-seat auditorium and you have three three-story buildings and a family life center with a full-size basketball court, running track, and gym, and tennis courts outside, you've got, you've got to get people to be given the money. And so now I was running camera four. <laughs> this is a portable camera. I'm down front. And he preaches a sermon out of, I'm fairly certain it was Psalm 78. I'd have to look it up. I've found it again since then. Psalm 78. From, from the very first time I heard this man preach, he preached from the New American Standard Bible. Same one that I like to use. It's 1977 NASB. Every sermon was from the NESB until that night. 
And he says, I'll be reading from the King James Version of the Bible. Found that very odd. The sermon was on from, I think it was Psalm 78, and the line was, they limited the God of Israel. They limited the God of Israel. The whole sermon was on, if you won't believe God's promises, that he will provide for you in light of the command to give the tithe, then you're going to limit the God of Israel. You've got to limit God in your life. You can limit God in the church. You can limit what we can do. It was all based on limiting the God of Israel. So I go home that night and I get out my New American Standard Bible. And it says they tempted the God of Israel. And so I had started Hebrew. And so I look it up and I go, oh, look at that. The King James translators didn't realize that there was that there was a, you know, there are certain terms. You look them up in Kohler Baumgartner or whatever, you know, B-Day, not, not B-Day. Um, starts with G. Anyways, uh, standard Hebrew lexical sources. And you have multiple meanings dependent upon the formation of the triliteral roots and stuff like that. And they just didn't know that and had completely missed it. It doesn't mean limited. It means tempted. The whole sermon. Now, he had to leave the Bible that he always preached from just to find one place that says you could limit God. And that's, that's not having a consistent hermeneutic. Okay, that's that's how there it is. And yeah, unfortunately, that is so common. So mm. and unfortunately, I think our time is about to expire. So I usually ask the, the guest on the show how we can be praying for you in the weeks to come. Well, let's let's be honest. Uh, <laughs> the world could be a very different place in the weeks to come, the way mm. things are are progressing and and moving, um, and I, I, I think we just need to be praying for a tremendous amount of wisdom uh, from God as to how to maintain our ability to not only fellowship with one another within the church, but to proclaim to a world that is um, embracing the culture of death in every possible fashion. Um, that this utopia you're creating is going to collapse in on itself. It's going to bury you. And when that happens, we still want to be here to tell you where to find the light because the post tenebrous lux um, saying of the reformation after the darkness light, the darkness is deepening greatly right now. I believe there will be light afterwards. Um, but it's going to be, we need to be praying for the wisdom to know how to deal with absolutely new challenges, not absolutely new in the sense of rebellion against God's new, but absolutely new challenges in the use of technology. During the Soviet era, you could still sneak out in the woods and have a church service. There are drones and satellites now. So we are going to be facing tremendous challenges in the not too distant future. 
So we need to be praying for all of us. Um, and everybody who is in leadership, I'm being asked all sorts of questions as a pastor. But I can guarantee you one thing, we didn't talk about this in seminary <laughs> uh, in any way, shape or form. So yeah, I think we just need to be praying for, for all of us. Okay, well, thank you so much again, Dr. White, for joining me on today's show. Thanks for having me. It was very enjoyable.